series called Gravity. And Gravity, the whole kind of focus of this series has been about learning to overcome the things that bring us down. And uh, that in life there is a tension that we carry, that there are things that we desire to overcome, there are things that we desire to conquer, but if we're really honest, there are some things in our life that just keep on beating us. And uh, this series is hopefully helping you find freedom in the daily disciplines and the habits. We started off this series with um, the story of David and Goliath, which is one of those kind of famous stories that even if you're here and you're just kind of new and exploring or seeking or doubting and questioning faith, the, the story of David and Goliath is probably one you've at least heard of before. And that David, according to what we can see in the text, was about nine feet tall. And this would have been David, I mean, this would have been Goliath's height. And, uh, and in the famous story of David and Goliath, you have David, and this would have been his height. And yet, this young man walks onto a battlefield with this seasoned veteran, and what happens is he falls, and he, he emerges as the victor. And we started off with just this simple mind, realizing that how we think about our problems really has an impact on how we face our problems. That if we change the way we think about our problem, we can usually change our circumstances surrounding our problem. But then we, we kind of took a step further and said it's not just about changing our mindset. There also has to be um, a realization that there's a principle that's either going to work with us or against us. And that principle is the principle of the harvest that we've heard in numerous different ways, but that you reap what you sow. That our decisions today will lead to consequences tomorrow. And those decisions today can either affect our tomorrow towards the good or towards the bad. And that we will either move towards financial freedom or towards healthier relationships, or we will choose to plant seeds that take us further away from our desired destination. But I think if we're going to continue to work towards overcoming, I think that we have to, to look back at the story of David and Goliath and say that the central to the story was fear. That when the nine-foot giant walked into that valley and cried out, send a warrior out to fight me, that the passage around that story is very clear that they were terrified and afraid. And that what kept them on the sidelines was the way they thought and the, the incredible, powerful amount of fear that held them back. And that fear is one of those things that you and I have to, to learn to face if we're going to, to step into some of those places and to step into those circumstances that God desires for us. This week, um, even as I was processing through fear, we had one of those moments in our little, our family. Um, I have a three-year-old, or soon-to-be four-year-old, actually, and she is the quintessential outdoorsman. She loves all things outside. When you go on any kind of walk with her, um, we live in the square in Dedham, and uh, so sometimes we walk to the library, and as we were walking to the library, uh, you have to really make sure you have a good grip on her, because if not, she sees a leaf, she's gone, or an acorn, she's gone, or a twig. She loves collecting leaves and acorns and twigs. I mean, you can walk into our place on any given day and swear that some rodent has, has kind of crept in and is building a nest because of all the foliage gathered around like her little cubby. And so my wife was like, let's, um, let's take a little family hike. 
at Wilson Mountain. It, it'd be really nice. I mean, if you're a four, soon-to-be four-year-old who's into leaf collecting and acorns and sticks and twigs, I mean, if that's your thing, then Wilson Mountain is like a quintessential Disney World for you, right? I mean, it's like it is the mecca of everything because there's leaves everywhere. And so it's like, this is going to be awesome. It's going to be great. And so um, Jenny's starting to load up Ella, and then Ella starts to scream and say, no, 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 we can't go, we can't go, we can't go. And Jenny's like, Ella, what's wrong? She said, Mommy, there's snakes everywhere. There's snakes everywhere there. And Jenny's like, okay, we don't have, like, snake phobias in our house. We don't daily devotional, daily thoughts around snakes and them hiding in state parks. And so we're like, where did this come from? And she, she'd heard it somewhere. But she was absolutely convinced that underneath every leaf at Wilson Mountain was snakes. And she refused to go. And Jenny's like, Ella, this is going to be incredible, sweetie. Like, we're going to walk through the Disney World of acorn and leaf lovers. I mean, this is going to be great. And, and Jenny literally had to, like, lead our daughter through this, like, profoundly gripping fear. That night, um, after we got back, and we had an incredible time, she picks up a book on gardens. That's a little flip book. And she happens to flip over a leaf that has a snake under it. And she starts screaming. And Jenny runs in, and Ella's like, I told you there was snakes. Right? And, and this crazy, ridiculous, irrational fear completely dominated the little heart, mind, and body of my four-year-old and almost kept her from doing something she completely loves. But before we continue the conversation on fear, I think it's probably helpful to delineate. There are two types of fear. There is a healthy fear that protects us from harm. Okay? But there is also a harmful fear that prevents us from being healthy. Not just physically, I'm talking about emotionally, spiritually, relationally, that there is a type of fear that protects us that's a helpful fear, a helpful fear. But then there's the harmful fear, and I think the fear that we're going to dive in, the fear that you see in this story is really the fears that hold us back from becoming better people, from becoming the type of person that inside you want to be, or to get out of debt, or to, to, to have a marriage that's stronger than the, what maybe you saw growing up. Like the, the, the fear that prevents us from stepping out, those fears are the harmful fears. And those fears, even, even if we're a 4-year-old or a 44-year-old or an 84-year-old, it's fears that seem to keep bubbling up in life. Right? Whether it's the fear of rejection or fear of being alone, and that fear of being alone is, is so strong and driving to you that it leads to a series of bad relationships one after the other because all you're trying to do is just to stop that fear of being alone from dominating. And a bad relationship is better than no relationship to you. Or maybe whether you're a middle school girl or even into adulthood, a fear of what others may think about you. A fear of rejection can lead you to make decisions about your body that's not healthy. And maybe you, you choose not to eat or you do things to your body and all of it's being driven by a fear of rejection and what others may think about you. Right? Or we're, we're so afraid of how people may react that we keep our struggles, we keep our addictions secret. 
And we build these walls that prevent us from being able to have healthy relationships, to pre that prevents us from having healthy communication in our relationships because we're so afraid what they might think if they knew what we struggled with. Like, those are the harmful fears. The fear of what people might think if we say we're going to get out of debt and we have to change the way we live and we don't look like we have as much money anymore because we have to start living inside of our means. Those fears are those harmful, corrosive fears. And fortunately for us, this is not a new struggle. We didn't emerge in the 21st century and discover harmful fears. This is something that's been around from the very beginning of humanity, that fear can hold us back. Fear can make us hide. Fear can damage relationships or destroy lives. And, and God, in His grace, I think what's incredible is if you were to flip through the Bible, and the Bible is a collection of books. It is a series of books all kind of forged together. Um, and you see time after time after time, well over a hundred times, God directly speaks to harmful fear. Of where he, he directly addresses, take heart, don't be afraid, like your fear is holding you back from what I have for you. Like this is over a hundred times God says that to different people. He's constantly repeating that refrain of do not be afraid, take heart. And so what I want us to do today is to dive into one of the most, um, one of the most important leaders of the early church, one of the most defining moments of his life that happens to be one of the most terrifying moments. And it's a bit extreme. I'll go ahead and give you the disclaimer. This is not something you're going to find yourself in. But what I think you see in this example, what you see in this extreme moment is a good example and teaching tool for us to learn how to deal with fear. Because here's something you need to learn about fear. Here, I think here's a helpful reality that fear is something that we will always have to manage in our life. It's something that we're always going to have to deal with. Because fear is not a problem to be solved. It's a tension to be managed. It's always going to be there. And how we choose to manage that fear is going to determine if we overcome it or not. And we see in Matthew chapter 14, verses 22 through 30, a perfect example of what it looks like to manage fear. If you have your Encounter Church app, you can click the Bible um, icon inside of it. It's already going to have this verse loaded, and you just click and it'll fire. If um, you have a Bible app or you have a physical book, because I think those things still exist. You can turn about two-thirds of the way through, and it'll be the book of Matthew. It's the first book in the New Testament, which are the Christian documents um, of around surrounding the church and Jesus and his life. If you don't have a Bible, uh, that's not anything to be ashamed of. That's why we have them here. So swing by starting point. When you leave today, we have one for you um, that's understandable. It's really easy to read and follow. Um, but if you don't have any of that, we're going to have it on the screen behind me to kind of help. And so um, what you find in Matthew 14, let me set the background and then we'll jump in. Matthew 14 is if your mind thinks visually or if you've ever seen um, if you, those movies with montages, right, where it's like the music starts playing and it's like all these fast, fast action sequences, this would be the montage moment. Okay, Jesus and his followers, things are starting to roll. Things are going really, really good. People are excited. Jesus has just fed, in this chapter, Matthew 14, he's just fed 5,000 men, which means that there were probably somewhere between 15 to 25,000 people. And that while that would have been a miracle within itself, 
in first century Palestine. Um, the fact that he did it with five loaves of bread and two fish makes it even more incredible. Right? This is a supernatural miracle. This is something, this is not an ordinary thing. This is not normal. This is an extraordinary moment. And the disciples are like, oh my goodness. And the montage hits and the music's playing. They're high-fiving and they're throwing bread up in the air and fish are flying and people are excited and everybody's clapping. And they're like, can you believe this? Just, I mean, this is like the Super Bowl moment for them because they've left everything believing that this guy, Jesus, is special. And now in this moment, they're like confirmed. He is special. He just fed 25,000 people. This is unbelievable. High five, high five. And Jesus is like, high five. And then they, Jesus is like, I need to dismiss the crowd. Get in the boats and go to our next destination. We've got a, we've got a movement happening here. And so they get on the boats and they start to head over to the other side of the lake. Jesus dismisses the crowds. And all of a sudden, it's like the music takes a dark turn. Dun. And it gets slower. And now... The followers, these 12 disciples, are now in the midst of a storm. And you see in verse 22, it says, Immediately Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side, while he dismissed the crowd. After he dismissed them, he went up on the mountainside by himself to pray. And later that night, he was there alone, and the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. And when the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and they cried out in fear. So what you see here is here's this incredible, um, powerful storm. And, and the lake is, because of the geography, storms happen frequently. So the fact that there's a storm happening on this lake is not the extraordinary thing. What's extraordinary is that if you dive into it a little bit, you realize that some of the words that Matthew, who was the writer of this, who was an eyewitness to all of this, is using words that give us a little bit more details. So when he says a considerable distance, it's actually a measurement. That's about two to three miles from the coast. So these guys are in the middle of the lake, about two to three miles out. When it says that Jesus, um, shortly before dawn, begins to walk out towards them, and when you kind of look and compare when he released them, this is about nine hours. So there's been nine hours since Jesus has released them. Now two or three miles out in the middle of the lake, um, they've been battling a storm for at least six of those hours. Now it's important to realize that these are fishermen. There are guys driving this boat who do this for a living. They fish on this lake. They know how to manage the storms this lake produces. And the fact that we find them still in the, the center of the lake after six hours of battling a storm, completely terrified, where you notice it says that, they, that Jesus begins to walk out to them. And they cry out, it's a ghost. They were terrified, and they cried out in fear, where it says in verse 26, they're in such a state of terror that literally they think they're about to die. And they're like, it's a ghost. He's coming to get us. I mean, it's like that's how bad mentally, emotionally they are at this moment. They're physically exhausted because they've been battling with. Think about it. This isn't like the day of like the Coast Guard. There's no street lamps. Or there's no lights along the lake. So they are in the middle of the lake. It's pitch black. The only light being provided is the light from the lightning strikes surrounding them in the mountains. 
The wind is pouring over waves into the boat. They're, they're pouring buckets of water out. They're rowing as hard as they can. They're fighting the sail that's constantly pushing on them. And in the midst of lightning strikes and flashes, they see a figure start to come out of the, the, the clouds. And they're absolutely terrified. And they scream, it's a ghost. And the first thing that you see, even before we jump into this, I think that you have to realize about fear is fear, one of the ways that fear controls us, one of the ways that fear has so much power that it exercises over us is that fear dominates our attention and our focus. Right? That's all these people see. All, they're consumed by the fact that they're about to die. They've, they've forgotten that somehow they've survived for six to nine hours. Which, if you're a betting man, gives you some good odds. You're like, look, you've made it six, six hours so far. I, it's possible the worst is already behind you. Like, you guys are making it. Just don't give up. But they don't see that. All they see is the circumstances. All they see is the storm. And now to top it off, they're like, yep, our worst fears are confirmed. Because here comes death, and it's coming to get us. It's all over. And see, when fear grips us, if we're not careful, we can quickly develop tunnel vision. And that tunnel vision is powerful. Right after, about exactly 48 hours after I got married, we were on our honeymoon um, in a mountain cabin in the Blue Ridge Mountains. And as we were walking, we'd been shopping that day, we were walking into our cabin, and, you know, it's 48 hours ago, I'd looked into the eyes of this woman, and I said, girl, no matter what, I got your back. Like, I'm always going to be here. I mean, I am a pop song waiting to happen. I am a country song waiting to happen. Like, I love you forever and ever and ever. I mean, like, insert whatever song it is into that moment. We're 48 hours into it. And as we're walking up the steps, I see a bee. Now, you need to know something about me. When I was 10 years old, I was attacked by over 50 bees. Um, I screamed. They were flying in my mouth, my nose. I mean, truly terrifying. I passed out from the amount of poison that flooded into my system. To say that I was afraid of bees is probably an understatement. Because as the bee popped up out of the bush, I screamed, shoved my wife towards the bee. <laughs> Take one for the team, girl. And shot in the house. <laughs> I love you. Right? So, 48 hours into this wonderful, I got your back, I will never leave you, to death do us part, asterisk at the bottom, until a bee comes along, right? Because what happens is when you're gripped by fear, you develop tunnel vision. I'd completely forgotten about the vows I'd made 48 hours early. All I saw was that bee, and all I had in me was an intense, intense feeling and memory of what happened when I was 10 years old. And I was willing to sacrifice that girl to get away from that tiny insect. And you see that with, with the disciples. They've got tunnel vision. All they see is the fear. All they see is the circumstances. All they see is what's happening. And for many of us, we can relate to that. If you've ever laid in bed at night, unable to sleep because you think about the test results that might come, or that meeting you have the next day, Right? Or 
that struggle that you know you need to share with your spouse about your finances. If you've ever found yourself in a place where you're unable to speak, unable to sleep, unable to move because all you can feel is consumed by fear, then you understand what it was like to be on that boat. And that's where they are. They've got tunnel vision. And yet in the midst of that, verse 27, but Jesus immediately said to them, take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. Verse 28, Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Verse 29, come, he said. And then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on water, and came towards Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. So here's the 12 guys. They're on a boat, tunnel vision, consumed by the circumstances of what's happening around them. And Jesus speaks to them. Jesus invites them. And Peter says, Lord, if it's you, tell me to come. What I love about this really simple interchange is this is the key to fear and managing it right here. What just happened is the key to managing our fear. See, what happens when you have tunnel vision and your focus is on the circumstances, you forget what you have control over. Because our circumstances, right, our circumstances, when fear steps into our circumstances, it's always tied to what we can't control. I can't control my circumstances. And so fear bubbles up out of that. And, and in the midst of those circumstances, Jesus speaks a reminder to them. Take heart. Do not be afraid. Because to overcome fear, you have to decide where you're going to focus your attention. You can focus your attention on the circumstances, or you can focus your attention on your response to the circumstances. And that's, I think that's a critical thing. If all you're being consumed by is what you can't control, then you feel powerless. But if, like Peter, you realize, I have a choice. If this is real, then I have an opportunity. And so he says, Jesus, if that's you, tell me to come out there. And Peter makes a choice about how he's going to respond to his circumstances. And he is the only one who recognizes he has a choice to make. All the other 11 stay in the boat. Peter gets out. Now, I think every single one of those guys could have gotten out of that boat and walked on water that day. But think, if you're Peter, your entire life you've been around the water. You are a man of the water. And now, you're a man on the water. Like, how incredible is that? Like, that's the story that for the rest of your life, hey, anybody want to share an interesting fact about yourself? Yeah, hi, my name is Peter, and I'm a fisherman, and I've walked on water. And it's like, oh, that, that again. Yes, that again, because have you ever done that? Oh, no, have you? Nope, nope. Anyone? Nope. Oh, that's right. I'm the only one who's ever walked on water. Mic drop. Right? I mean, that, like, that's a significant thing. That's a, an incredible experience. Peter recognizes in the midst of my circumstances, I have a choice. I can be consumed by my circumstances, or I can choose how I'm going to respond to my circumstances. And if this is Jesus, and he's walking on water, then guess what? I can walk on water too. And he does. 
And he steps out. Now, what I love about this is that in the midst of this, I recognize that in this room, we have people on the full spectrum. It's one of the things I love about Encounter Church, that there are some of you who are here, and you're skeptical, and you don't buy into this supernatural thing at all, and you're like, I was with you about fear, and now you're talking about dudes walking on the water, and, and I saw, like, David Blaine do that, but he had acrylic, and he was standing on it, and it was like a, an illusion, so I don't know if I buy this. And then there's some who are just completely sold out, and you're like, yep, Jesus walked on the water. That's awesome. I wish I could walk on the water. What I love about the full spectrum, though, is if I was going to make up this stuff, if I'm that guy who's making up a religion, I would not write verse 26 about being terrified, and I wouldn't write verse 27. Or, I mean, um, not verse 27. I wouldn't write verse 30. If I'm making this thing up, I would not say, oh, by the way, remember, I stepped on the water, all of us came out, and we were awesome, and we danced, and we did our thing. I would not be writing and recording that I got out there, that I screamed, got terrified, and started to drown. Like, if you're going to make up a religion, that's a bad idea. Just saying. Go back to my little thing here. So, so he steps out, and he starts to experience the impossible. He's the only one who experiences because he's the only one who realizes he has a choice to respond to his circumstances. And he doesn't stay focused on the tunnel vision of his circumstances. To, to break it down, even in the business world, I, I like Jim Collins, and maybe some of you have read some of Jim Collins' works in business. He's a brilliant, brilliant author. And one of his most recent books, he, he writes about um, the secrets of businesses and leaders who are able to lead organizations through turbulent times. And he talks about Bill Gates, and he says that Bill Gates was a productive paranoid person. He had this productive paranoia. And that's Jim Collins' way of saying that the way you deal with fear is either you're consumed by the circumstances or you focus on what you can control. At the point that Microsoft, under Bill Gates' leadership, was making billions of dollars in profit, a memo leaked out. And if you were to have read that memo, completely divorced from the reality of Microsoft's profits, you would have assumed Microsoft was on the verge at any day of going under. Because the memo dictated how market conditions could turn against it. It had all of these reasons why Microsoft should start building a response plan to these threats. The year he's writing this, they're bringing in over $5 billion in profit. If you were bringing in $5 billion of profit, would you be writing a, mil a memo about the threats that you have in your business? And the reason why is one of the things that's attributed to Bill Gates and his, his effectiveness was that Bill Gates was always focusing on their response to the potential circumstances surrounding Microsoft. Whereas other leaders saw the circumstances, and because that's all they focused on, they were powerless as a leader and as an organization to respond to them. And so they were like real estate agents in the midst of the boom who said, we just can't sell a house because the market's bad. Versus some of the real estate agents who emerged on the other side even wealthier who said, you know what? I can't control the market, but I can control how I wake up each day and how many sales and how many phone calls and how aggressive I'm being. And that was Bill Gates' secret. He was this productive paranoid. He was always thinking what could go wrong and what his response should be in light of it. And so you go back to 
finding yourself in that moment where you can't speak, or you can't sleep, or you can't move. When you choose to focus on your response and not the circumstances, in that moment, you start to say, well, what can I do? You choose to, to drill into the thing that you have control over. Well, maybe you can't control what's happened to you, but you control how you respond to it. My mom is one of my greatest heroes. because She's an incredible woman who overcome so many obstacles, moving around different homes, unwanted by her parents, abused, neglected. But my mom had this realization somewhere in her teen years, um, after she became, um, yeah, just horrible stuff, that she didn't have the power to change her circumstances, but she had the power to respond to her circumstances. And that the one thing she had was choice. And so growing up, that was something that she taught us over and over and over again. Son, you can't control where you start from. You, you can't dictate your starting line. But you have a response and you have an, a choice of how you're going to run after the race starts. Our family started way behind some other families that you know and love. But you have an opportunity to run. You have a choice. That's your responsibility. I think even when you look at this, that Peter steps out and then sinks, it's a great reminder and I think an appropriate warning that we will always manage this tension. If if fear was a problem to be solved, when Peter stepped out of the boat, he could have said, yep, fix fear, I'm done, solve that problem. But he gets a few steps out and what happens? He's consumed by fear again. You see, you and I, if we're going to live a life that is overcoming those challenges and obstacles, we have to realize that we will always, always fight to manage the tension fear brings into our life. We will not solve the problem. If we're going to wait around till we're no longer afraid to step out, we will never step out because we will always have to manage the tension that fear brings. The scariest moment of my entire life happened in 2011. I had the opportunity to preach in Egypt. And as my plane was landing in Cairo, I was turning on my phone. I was alerted that there were 26 Christians that were just killed about 20 miles from where my plane was touching down. I was there to speak to Christians and pastors, um, and I was going to be part of this 10-day kind of preaching tour I was part of. And I go to meet my translator, and the first thing he says to me when he meets me is not, hello, my name is John. It's, don't get me killed. And I'm like, oh, my name's Chris. This is kind of a tense moment. I'd already gone through an incredible amount of security just to get into my hotel. And now I'm meeting my translator who says, don't get me killed. Every night I would preach, I would have to walk by an armed um, military guard who was there to spy on me, not to protect me. Because if I said or did anything that crossed the lines, um, I could be arrested or I could be deported. But even more frightening was that the pastor could be killed of the church who invited me to speak. So about three nights in, things are still tense, um, but things are going really well. Um, My translator says, hey, I've got a meeting. I'm going to arrange for you to be picked up and transported. So I wait outside my hotel. The driver pulls up. He points to me as, like, I think you're an American, and you're the only American here, so I must be picking you up. And 
He gestures. I come over. He says the name of something I was supposed to recognize. I said, yeah, whatever. I get in the back, and we start to drive down this major interstate. I'm in a city about the size of Chicago, and we get about half a mile down the road, and all of a sudden a sharp U-turn, and the car flings around and starts going the other direction. My heart kind of skips a little. I'm like, all right, what just happened? All of a sudden, we're turning down a dirt road. Now, if you were in Chicago and you turned down a dirt road, you would probably start to feel some of the same things I feel. Like, where in the world did this dirt road come from? We're in Chicago, right? So we turn down this dirt road, and as we're driving down this dirt road, I look over to my right, and there's a car on fire and men surrounding it. And about that point, I pull out my phone, and I start videoing everything happening around me. And it's like, because unfortunately, around the same time was when 24 was really kind of rolling, and I don't know if you remember that show or have ever watched that show, but I watched 24 all the time. And so in my head and in my heart, I knew what was about to happen. This happened to Jack Bauer all the time, except I wasn't Jack Bauer. So I had a feeling how it was going to go down for me. And so I've got my phone documenting it like, I love you. Kiss my girl for me, because I think it's over. And in the midst of like this horrible fear of like, this is how my life ends. I'm going to be killed. Because this guy's up here on the phone periodically, and he's going, ha, 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 I have the American in the car. No, he does not know. That's probably not what he's saying, but that's what I'm hearing in, in the maniacal ha, ha, ha. That was not happening, but I was hearing that too. And um, about the time I'm, I'm flipping my phone around to record my final thoughts, I realize that I'm holding a cell phone. And that this thing I'm using to document my demise could actually be the tool for my deliverance. So I flip it back over and hit redial, and I call my translator. I said, John, I don't know where I am. I'm in a field somewhere in this city. There's a car on fire. I can't speak Arabic, and this guy doesn't speak English, and I'm terrified. And he said, hand the phone to the driver. I gave the phone to the driver. I heard what again seemed like, no, I have the American. You will never get him back, ha, 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 ha. And then he hands me the phone back. He says, hey, Chris, um, don't worry. He's taking a shortcut. I told him that you had to be there by 6. And he saw traffic, and he's redirecting you. And this is a shortcut. Just trust him. He's going to get you there. I'll keep my phone close by. If there's anything, you call me. I said, like, okay, John, thank you. I hung up the phone. At the end of this story, Peter steps and he begins to drown. And he starts to call out for help. And in the midst of calling out for help, Jesus grabs his hand and he rescues him. See, in the back seat of that car, I think... If, whether you're a skeptic or you're sold out, no matter where you are in the journey, at the end of the day, this story is supernatural. Because we believe, at the heart of Christianity, that the same one who walked on that water came back from the dead. And if he can come back from the dead, that means that we have a power through prayer, we have a power through faith to access and to speak and call out to him. And that he has an ability to change our circumstances or to change us in the midst of our circumstances. 
He may not always deliver us from what we're going through, but he has the power to deliver us through it. And that before we finish up this series next week, I wanted for us just to be able to process this strong and powerful emotion of fear and realize that there is a God who stands above fear, a God who is able to rescue, to redeem, to set free, to restore. There is a God who gives hope even when you feel like all hope is lost. There is a God who, like that translator that I was able to reach out on my phone, whose presence made all the difference in my circumstance. There is a God whose presence has the power to change where you are right.